1: Verse 1 to 17. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform these signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. Then how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven
0: Alright. Man, that was, that was great. So good. Well, I don't know about you, but I am enjoying our Lent series so far. We're in week two of it, and I know that um, Brandon and Nate just shared the different things you can be doing for Lent and all of these different things. I encourage you to lean into that. You know, there's something special about being able to prepare ourselves towards Easter. And it might feel like Easter. I always equate Easter with spring. And that might feel far away after our snowstorm on Friday. But it is March. We are getting there. There is the promise that the snow won't stay. Um, And Easter will be here before we know it. So let's keep leaning into that. And I'm looking forward to unpacking this text this morning in John chapter 3. The story of Nicodemus that honestly even when you hear it read out there, you might feel like this is a little bit confusing. Like I don't really know what's going on in this conversation. And it feels a little bit confusing. Maybe there's some familiar language there. Maybe you've been around church for a while and you're going, okay, I kind of have heard this idea of born again before. Uh, maybe you're saying, like, maybe you identified and say, I'm a born-again Christian, right? I I am saved. I've made that decision. The spirit is in me. Maybe you're here for the first time and you're like, I have no idea what's going on. Like that just sounded so confusing to me. And I don't know exactly uh, where to go with this. We are going to dive into this passage. We're going to do a bit of a deep dive into this passage and really pull apart what is happening in this conversation. What is Jesus saying? What's going on with Nicodemus? Who is he? What does it have to say for us today? How does it actually apply to us? So we're going to jump into that this morning. So who's Nicodemus? What's going on here? What's happening as he goes to see Jesus? You know, this conversation is happening pretty close to the start of the book of John, the gospel of John, which is really an account of Jesus's life here on earth and what he did for us. And so in John chapter three, there's been a a bit of movement. Jesus has done some miraculous things. His ministry has started all of these different things. And this Pharisee Nicodemus comes to see Jesus at night. What's going on here? If you remember back to our Paul series earlier this year, we talked about Paul being a Pharisee. And, and Pharisees are basically this sect of Jewish people at the time that were really knowledgeable. Pharisees knew a lot about Scripture. What we now look back to as the Old Testament. They would study. They knew the Scriptures. They really took a lot of pride in their understanding. And what they had to offer with a logical perspective and an understanding and the knowledge that they had. And with that really came a lot of pride for the Pharisees. And you see the Pharisees questioning Jesus as he's doing these miraculous things and he's teaching. And they come up and they question him and they throw things at him uh, when, when it comes to knowledge and how does this fit and what does this look like. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a thinker. Maybe you're here and you're like, yeah, I'm a thinker. I'm a logical person. I like to operate above the neck. Don't put me into my emotions. Don't put me into my feelings. I'm just going to head right back up here to the logical side of things. And this is where Nicodemus is coming from. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. So he knew what was going on and he was really curious about who Jesus was. He had seen him do miraculous things. He had seen the teaching. He even says to Jesus, like, I know that you are a teacher sent from God, but I need to make sense of what's happening here. Interestingly, though, this conversation doesn't take place in broad daylight. It doesn't take place as Jesus is teaching and around other people and, and having, uh, doing miracles and seeing this come about. This conversation takes place at night. There's a personal conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. Nicodemus is coming with this curiosity and saying, Jesus, like, make this make sense for me. Because I'm not sure who you are. I'm not sure what you're doing. I'm not sure how it applies to things. But you're, you're kind of messing things up here. You're upsetting things a little bit. And I want to understand what is going on here. So what does Jesus say? Basically, Jesus lets us know, and John tells us uh, a little bit after this conversation in verse 16, that the kingdom of God is actually for the whole world. It's not just for a particular group of people. This would have been surprising for a Pharisee. This would have been surprising for Nicodemus because he's going, no, no, no. Like, the kingdom of God is for the Israelite nation, our ancestors that we have. This is where the kingdom of God is for. And yet, Jesus is saying, no, this is for the whole world. And then he says, you must be born again. What does this mean, that you must be born again? Even this is a revolutionary idea, and you can almost see Nicodemus' like, wheels turning in his head of going like, what could this possibly mean? And perhaps there was even this feeling of, what do you mean be born again? Right? There's some pride of being a Pharisee and having some uh, say in his culture and society around it. Why would I want to be born again? How could I possibly elevate my status beyond what it is right now? I already have good standing. But then Jesus goes on to to basically say to Nicodemus, and listen, you won't be part of it. This kingdom that's for everybody, you won't be part of it unless you're born again. And he tells him that we don't get to control the Holy Spirit. Like the Spirit of God that's moving, it's not just about having full understanding of the Spirit and trying to control the Spirit and that somehow we have power over the Spirit. He's saying, like, the Spirit is not under our control. The Spirit operates and works as he wants to. When we look at this passage, when you look at the first 12 verses in chapter 3, we're really seeing Jesus acting as teacher in this place. And perhaps in a similar way that we would act as teacher, if someone were to come to us and say, okay, I'm trying to understand this whole Christianity thing, maybe a colleague, a friend, a family member. I'm trying to understand this. I've heard this language, being born again. Like, what does that mean? I'm trying to understand what it means to be saved, and I'm curious about this, and maybe you're coming in here today with those exact questions. And Jesus takes this approach of teaching Nicodemus what it means to be born again. And Nicodemus kind of takes the stance of, like, what are you talking about how could this possibly work? Like, what are you talking about this idea of being born again? I can't go back inside my mother's womb. What a weird thought. What a weird thought that that's where he went with that. But that's where he went. He's going like, okay, you're born the first time. How can you possibly be born again? I, like, I'm a grown man. I can't do this. For Nicodemus, the explanation that Jesus gave seemed unintelligible. So it became questionable. It didn't make logical sense to him. And he's really trying to get there, but he's questioning it because it doesn't seem to make sense. And Jesus goes on to say, listen, Nicodemus, flesh gives birth to flesh. It wouldn't matter if you were reborn a thousand times. Flesh, a person, can only give birth to flesh, a person. It's the spirit that gives birth to the spirit. We need to surrender to the Spirit. It's not just an intellectual process. It's not just saying, okay, if I can get enough understanding of what's going on, then I will be saved, then I will be good, then I can have this all figured out. It's a spiritual process, this being born again. It's not just about saying, I believe. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit to work in the process of regeneration, this idea of being born again. And it's now no longer a process of the, of the flesh, but it is a process of the spirit. Jesus introduces a new concept that we can't just be born again of the flesh, that we can't just, in our own understanding, have this all figured out. We need to be born of the spirit. And this is where we get this comparison between flesh and spirit. We see this all throughout Paul's letters in the New Testament. If you are born of the flesh, the flesh is sinful, The flesh is geared towards sin and acts of sin. The spirit is redeeming. We're called to walk by the spirit in Galatians 5, 16. We're reminded that those in the flesh cannot please God in Romans 8, verse 8. And there's desires of the flesh that we need to be aware of and we need to choose other two. The spirit gives gifts. The spirit gives strength. The spirit gives peace. The spirit gives ability. It's not us just mustering it up. It is only by the Spirit when we are born again of the Spirit. The Spirit has to change us. So this is what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus. And it can feel a little bit complicated. It can feel a little bit, okay, what's going on here, Jesus? I can kind of get my head wrapped around it. But how does this actually take place? Like, how do we move from this place of flesh and understanding and trying to have it all figured out into this place of the Spirit? And allowing the spirit to work in us. Now I think it's important here that we realize that scripture is logical. It makes sense. We can look through it. We can study it. We can study theology. It can go up against science and philosophy and all of these things and stand up. If ever there's a feeling of like, ah, if there's like, if push comes to shove and someone asks me a question, like, man, my whole faith is just going to break down. That's a you issue. That's not a faith issue. That's not a scripture issue. Scripture, I really believe, scripture can stand up against any of the world's questions, any of the world's doubts, any of the world's fears, any of the logic, any of the science, any of the philosophy, any of the understanding. It really can stand up against it. Maybe you just haven't dug deep enough. Maybe you just haven't looked far enough. Maybe you just haven't asked the right questions. But you don't have to be insecure in this place of, man, is this the real deal? So scripture is logical, and we can actually have understanding from it, but that is not enough. We have to give way for the spiritual. We have to open ourselves up for the spirit. And this is where verse 13 is pivotal. So Jesus is teaching for these first 12 verses. And in verse 13, this is where he starts to speak of himself. And this is what changes everything. None of this is possible. None of this work of the spirit, none of this work of regeneration or being born again is possible without Jesus, you see, Jesus coming to earth takes care of the separation that sin has created between us and God. This is the difference maker. So back in the garden with Adam and Eve, there was perfect relationship with God. Maybe you've heard this before. There's perfect relationship with God. And then they made a choice other than God. They made a choice to sin. They made a choice for themselves. The serpent offered this choice and Eve took it and ate from the fruit. And sin enters into the picture. And from that moment on, we have this holy creator God, and we have this sin that has entered into the created beings. And God is setting in motion a plan of redemption that we could be back in relationship with him. And we see this taking place on that outset, really throughout all of scripture, to the pinnacle of of Jesus, So this chasm was created between a fully holy God and a sinful people. And we see God work through the Israelite people in the Old Testament, his chosen people, and he gives them the law and he gives them opportunity to cleanse themselves so that they might be in relationship, that they might have some level of relationship with this holy God. But it's not in its fullness. It's not complete. And what Jesus does coming to earth is he makes a way because he was without sin. He was perfect. He was the only way. He makes the way through his death and his resurrection. It is impossible without him. This might not feel really comfortable to make that kind of statement. That it is impossible without Jesus. A common idea that gets floated around is, oh, we're all just, you know, there's a lot of different religions, but there's one God and we're all just serving the same God. and It's all going to be good. We'll figure it out later. As Christians, we cannot take that approach. That might feel uncomfortable, but we cannot take that approach because what we see in scripture is that there is only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. That is only coming to believe in him, to surrender to him, to be born again of the spirit, to lay down our flesh, lay down our lives, and actually have new life in Christ. That is the only way to the father. It's the only way. It's impossible without him. He talks about that the son of man needs to be lifted up. He's the one that we need to look to if we are going to have eternal life. But I love in all of this that Jesus is so kind to Nicodemus. This is blowing Nicodemus's mind. Like, if we're just looking at this, he's going like, I don't get it. I don't fully understand this. Like, Jesus, what is going on here? Jesus very easily could have been like, I see you're not ready for this. Why don't you go and figure this out? Or maybe Jesus could have gotten defensive, right? You don't want, you don't want my faith? You don't want what I have to offer? Like, I don't know if I have much to give to you then. But Jesus, in his kindness, sticks with Nicodemus, walks with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, he's not getting it. But Jesus doesn't give up on him in this. And honestly, I think that we can take a lot of comfort in that because many of us are like Nicodemus. Jesus, could you just make this more clear for me before I I go all in here? I just want to have all the answers. Can you just make it make sense in its fullness? If I could just fully get my head wrapped around this and make sure it checks all of my political and cultural and social and relational boxes perfectly, then I might feel okay about this. Then I might feel okay of actually um, surrendering to you. Many of us are searching But we're not satisfied with the answers that Jesus gives. We operate in this yes, but mentality with another doubt and another frustration, another concern. And there is space for that. That is what Jesus shows us as he sticks with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, I know you're trying to work in the logical here. There is logic. I'm going to lay it out for you. I'm going to help you figure this out. But also, you got to trust me but also you have to look to me at some point here. So what does Jesus do? He leans into Nicodemus's kind of oddities or uncertainties or the logic, and he goes, okay, Nicodemus, I know you're a smart guy. You know the scripture so well. So here, maybe this will help you make sense of it. And then we get to verse 14 where he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Basically, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, remember that story, that story about your ancestors? Like, remember that back in the wilderness, the Israelites, they were wandering around the desert. You know this well. You know the scriptures well. You're a Pharisee. Remember how they complained to God, and God sent snakes, and they, they bit them, and a bunch of them died. And, and then remember how Moses lifted up a bronze snake? Do you remember this? Now, for many of us here, we might not remember this. Nicodemus did, right? Like, that was a very obvious connection for Nicodemus in his study and in in who he was. But for us, we might not remember. So I'm going to take you there in Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. It says, they traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. This is the Israelite nation who has come out of Egypt and freed from slavery and captivity in Egypt, and they are not yet in the promised land, and they are wandering around the desert at this point. It says, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food, Men. Does that not sound like us? Like, let's just be honest here for a moment. God, you gave us this. You, did you just be, And it's like, God's like, I am literally making food out of nothing here that arrives for you every single day. What is going on here? But they are complaining. They are sinning against God. It says, then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. We've got to remember that the desert was not a safe place. Like, as they're wandering around the desert, this is not a place of safety. This is not like a lap of luxury walking down the beach. Like this, that's not what is happening when they are wandering through the desert. There is serious uh, uh, snakes. There are serious things that can come up against them, and God is protecting them and keeping them safe. And it's like they don't even realize it. So God's like, okay, like if you don't if you don't want my help, if you don't want my provision, I'm just gonna let what would happen happen here. Like these snakes can come. Since the Lord sent snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, we sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. They repent. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived this is wild that jesus chooses this story this passage to reference to nicodemus see we have the perspective that all of the old testament is prophetic and looking towards the coming of jesus and jesus sees that text through that same lens that this is coming but jesus really you're picking this story to reference yourself you're looking at this story he likens himself to a snake. That is absolutely crazy. What we see in scripture is that a snake, a serpent, is seen as the enemy. Is seen as evil. We see this in Revelation when it talks about the dragon, the serpent. We see this in Genesis when the serpent comes and tempts Adam and Eve. What are we talking about? The snake on the pole was seen as a representation of God's wrath on the people. And shockingly and awe-inspiringly, Jesus was the embodiment of sin on the cross so that we could be saved. Jesus takes on sin so that we could have life everlasting, so that we could be saved. By becoming this, he actually takes our sin away. Jesus is foretelling and foreshadowing what would happen to him on that cross, what was necessary in order for us to come into relationship with God once again. You see, it's not just enough to know about God. We can know the things, but something had to shift in order to take away that curse of sin. Something had to change. And the only one who could do that was Jesus. He was the only one who was without sin that could actually be raised up on that cross, die, take on sin, die, defeat sin, defeat death by rising again in order for us to be able to believe in him, have a spiritual regeneration take place as we turn and trust him and become saved and be in relationship with the Father. That is the only possible way you see it's interesting because the israelites that we see in numbers they were already bitten by the snakes when they were told to look to the snake on the pole they had already been bitten this wasn't a preventative method it was with an acknowledgement that without god without god working through the means of this brass snake they would die In order to live, they had to look. They had to look at the snake on the pole. And the same is true for us today as well. The first thing that we need to do is we need to look to Jesus. If we are going to be saved, we must look to Jesus. It is such a simple concept, and yet we often miss this so deeply or we complicate it so much. I think that this often comes because we don't actually realize that we are infected. Like, we don't actually realize that we are sinful. We intellectualize things. We look around us. We're like, oh, I'm kind of better than this person on the outset. And maybe I've got things figured out more than this person. Or if I just change some things, if I just pick up this self-help health, health book, and I figure out my habits in my life, and I figure out my schedule, and I figure out, you know, some things that are going to keep me from these areas, put some guardrails and boundaries. If I listen to enough of these talks, if I get enough podcasts, in me, about, then I will fix myself. And it will be fine. And I'll stop having these bad things that I'm ashamed of. And I'll stop dealing with this stuff. And I'll come to church on Sunday because that's what good people do. And we have this idea that somehow we can do this in our own flesh. And that is not the case. It says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Church, we are sinful. We have messed up and we do so time and time again we've complained we've been selfish and prideful we've attempted to do it on our own we've been mean impure dishonoring envious lustful we've done it all sin has taken a bite out of us and we are poisoned and we will die unless we look to jesus that's the only way it's not a preventative uh, method it's us acknowledging our sinfulness. Just as the Israelites look to the serpent on the cross, we look to our Savior on the cross who took on all of our sin and appeased the wrath of God so that we could have eternal life. We need to believe. So we need to look, we need to believe. For God so loved the world. He didn't want us to stay like this. God wants eternal life with us. And our call is to believe that Jesus is Lord. And this is not just an intellectual process where we make a choice to believe. That is part of it. But it is putting our full trust that he alone saves us. There's no other way except through him. Trusting that Jesus is in control, that he is greater. And then in this, we are born again. We must be born again. This is where we go back to Jesus' teaching to Nicodemus. It's not of the flesh. It's of the Spirit. It's not enough just to acknowledge Christ's mission and miracles. Nicodemus does this when he comes to Jesus at night. He says, I've seen your miracles. I know your mission. That is not enough. We actually have to allow and open ourselves up and simply say, Okay, Spirit, would you move? We sang about it this morning. Would you do a work in me? I believe, I trust Jesus. And He will. When you make a choice to believe and trust Jesus, to surrender yourself, to acknowledge your sin, you're allowing the spirit to do a new work in you. Colossians 3 says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind to things above, not on earthly things. For you died, your flesh is gone, and your new life, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This changes us. We actually become spiritual beings. And we cannot benefit from the comfort of Christ without this. We can't benefit from the kingdom without this. Nicodemus is certainly trying. We need to allow the Spirit to work in us. Not just about our effort, it's where our eyes are placed. So I wonder, where are you looking today? In Psalm 121, the psalmist writes, I lift my eyes to the mountain. Where does my help come from? It doesn't come from the mountains. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. In Matthew 17, we read of Peter and James and John high on the mountain with Jesus. And this transfiguration takes place where Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah. And then the father speaks proclaiming him as his son. And the disciples fall on the ground and they are full of fear. And 17 verse seven says, but Jesus came and touched them saying, get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself. Where are your eyes placed today? Whether you've been a Christian for many, many years, or you are here and you are curious and you are wondering who this Jesus is, where are your eyes placed today? Worship team, why don't you come on up? I'm just going to end with this story that I thought was interesting and and really striking in in this call to look to Jesus. And it's about Charles Spurgeon. And he lived in the 19th century. Maybe you're familiar with who he is. He was a Baptist preacher, teacher, author, very, very influential in the Christian faith. And affected countless people. And he tells about his story of coming to know Jesus personally. And he describes this story that he was 15 years old, and he was in the middle of a snowstorm, and he was walking down the street uh, on a Sunday, and, and the storm was really, really bad. Like, picture Friday night. I don't know if there was, like, um, what was it, thunder snow? Maybe that happened then. It's rare. Could have happened in the 19th century. He's caught in a snowstorm, and he can't go any further. Like, it's that bad. So he turns down this side street, and he comes across this small Methodist chapel. And the storm is so bad, he goes inside to try to get away from the storm and, and retreat a little bit. And he gets in there, and there's about a dozen people that are inside this little chapel that have made it, braved the storm, gathered for church that morning. But the preacher did not show up. He got snowed in, couldn't make it to church. And so basically there was a text that had been scheduled that day and someone needed to preach it. Could you imagine this happening? We're not here. Did, couldn't make it. Snowstorm hit. Church is still on. All right. Who's good, who wants to? Who wants, here's the text. Who wants to preach today? That's basically how it was. And he describes this, uh, this slim, wiry man coming up and opening up the text and reads out of Isaiah, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And this is what he recounts. He had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text. And there was nothing needed, by me at least, except his text. I remember how he said, and I won't use the uh, accent that he was operating out of. I remember how he said, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't don't take a great deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger, It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest biggest fool, and yet you can look. A child can look. One who's almost an idiot can look. However weak or however poor a man may be, he can look. And if he looks, the promise is that he shall live. He went on in his broad Essex accent. Many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. The preacher managed to spin this out for 10 minutes and then then running out of anything fresh to say, looked at his congregation and picked up on Spurgeon. Young man, you look very miserable. Could you imagine this? I could probably look out right now and point a few miserable faces out. You look very miserable, he said. Well, said Spurgeon, I did look miserable but i had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance before however it was a good blow struck right home the preacher went on and you always will be miserable miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text but if you obey now this moment you will be saved and then he shouted at the top of his voice as i think only a primitive methodist can young man look to jesus look look Look, you have nothing to do but look and live. Charles Spurgeon writes, And I did look. And so many were changed from this point, including himself. It's a simple call this morning, church, to look. Maybe you've never made a decision to trust and believe and actually allow the Holy Spirit to die to flesh and to come alive in Christ to see what He has done, to acknowledge your own sin. Maybe you've never done that before, but maybe you have. And over time, you've started to look into yourself again. You've started to look elsewhere for your salvation. You've started to uh, uh, forget that the Spirit works in you. You've started to try to pick it up and take it on yourself. That is not the call. The call is to acknowledge that we have been made spiritual beings. And it is the spirit that works through us. Let us not be so prideful to think that we can have it all figured out. We need to humble ourselves, surrender, and look to Jesus this morning. So we're going to take a couple minutes here and just worship. We're going to stand together if you want to do that now. And then I'm going to come back and we're going to pray. But I want you to take a moment and reflect. What are you looking at? In the right. maybe you're here and you've never made that decision to follow Jesus. You've never been born again and allowed the spirit to work inside you. And you don't have to have all the answers, right? This is at some point a bit of a leap of faith. And so maybe you're here and you're going, I need to look to Jesus. I need to acknowledge that I need a savior, that I need to be saved. That's you with every eye closed and every head bowed. raise a hand I just want to know who I'm praying for I'm not going to point you out or anything like that it's this outward expression of an inward decision an act of surrender yeah why don't we pray together God I thank you for everyone making this decision Holy Spirit, I thank you that you come and do a new work in us. Holy Spirit, I thank you that there is new life being birthed today. Spiritual life. New understanding. And Jesus, we acknowledge that this is only possible through you. Through your death and your resurrection, that we could have relationship with the Father. And we are so thankful for it. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Can we just celebrate those making that decision today? And listen, if you're here, I want to pray one more time, just with eyes closed again. If you're here and you just need to surrender once again to Jesus, to look to the cross, to acknowledge that there is no way, that sin is too much and too great, and yet you came and you died and you are good. And Jesus, we look to you today. Holy Spirit, would you move? Would you move across our church, God? Would you move across our families? Would you move across our workplaces? As we look and we look forward to celebrating Easter, I just pray that this would not be a week to week celebration, but God, as we walk across our city, praying over the streets, God, I just pray that there would be households that would experience you, Holy Spirit, that there would be change that would take place, that people would know who you are because someone prayed and the Spirit fell and the Spirit moved. Holy Spirit, you move like the wind. You operate outside of our control, and today we just ask that you would move in us and you would move through us. Holy Spirit, we just pray across this whole season as a church that you would be the difference maker, that people all across this city, including ourselves, would turn and look to Jesus in all of our pain and all of our suffering and all of our trouble. Would we just see you and know that we are saved? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to our Sunday podcast. If you hear more messages like these, be sure to share and subscribe. We're thankful for all that God is doing in our church right now. We would love to have you be a part of what is going on. You can connect with us by filling out a Connect card online at slatechurch.com. And hey, stay tuned for more content coming soon.